Hello, humans, and welcome to another episode of the How to Human podcast. If you're new here, welcome. My name is Sam Lamott. I'm a teen dad, ex-methed college dropout. I claim no moral, intellectual, or spiritual superiority to you. At the end of the day, I am trying to have conversations about what it's like being a human and learning how to be a better human or a more useful human to my friends, family, and community. My best friend and I recently built a beautiful new studio for us and for clients and people who want help telling their story in San Anselmo, California called Square One Studio. You can go to our website, www.square1.studio. It's a website. It works. When we got back into the studio to start recording podcast episodes, my interests in the people I wanted to talk to has changed slightly. I really want to talk to some of the really cool, sincere, kind, charitable, compassionate humans that I've met along the way personally. A lot of these people aren't going to be people you know or people who have something to sell you, but they are good examples of one way to live during this lifetime. And it might be because I'm spending more time off social media, but I have been finding myself more interested in the people I talk to in the grocery store than influencers or authors, amazing people. There are celebrities and stars who I love. A lot of them have been on this show. There are others who I would love to have on the show one day, but I just feel a calling to talk to people living regular lives, figuring out how to pay their bills, be parents to their children, and participate in the world at the level I participate in, which is another human on the planet trying to get by. When I started thinking about who I wanted to have on the show the answer is people I've gotten to know personally over the years who are not influencers. They, some of them might not have websites or programs to sell you or books that you can read, but people who I have grown to admire, people who have played some role in my life. And I think the next couple episodes are just going to be conversations like this. So to start us off, I invited my friend Rob. I met him in a tea shop. In my life, Rob has been a really good human. This is somebody who has texted me when I have fallen out of the loop and started to isolate. This is somebody who has given me really good advice as an older man to a younger man. And somebody who has used his time here on the planet to help his community and help the people around him, both as a profession, but also just with his spare time. We would have lots of late night discussions on life and being a mentor and there was a little bit of mentoring me and giving me some hard-earned wisdom that a older male who has seen a lot of the world can give to a younger male. He worked in the Oakland Unified School District helping kids who were struggling and he's going to tell you more about that but at the end of the day this is somebody who I admire for his courage to just be who Rob is. Somebody who I thought would be fun to share with the listeners or viewers, if you're one of our patrons. So without further ado, here is my episode with Rob Dusa, or as I have him saved in my phone, Rob the Tiger Man. Hey, Rob. How's it going, Sam? It is good to have you in studio. <laughs> Very good to be here. You're a second guest in studio. Wow. And you also, for me, mark a really important moment in what I want our next podcast episodes to really be about, which is about regular people. It's cool having these mega celebrities. I enjoy them. Recently, I found myself really just connecting with people in my community, the people that I've known. You're somebody that I've known for a couple of years. I'm just excited to have, I'm excited to have you on because I think that you miss something when you talk to just the people who got a combination of being incredibly talented and lucky breaks to get big exposure. You, you miss the, the struggle and life is really a struggle. For me, I still find life almost as hard as I found it when it was at, at its hardest, just hard in different ways. I'm just going to start off like this. You and I met in a tea shop, and I would say, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I would say there's almost an instant kind of gravitational pull. I think for me, there's always a hole in my heart to have a kind, strong, older man in my life. And I think for you, there must have been some kind of connection similar where you, you, you knew I needed some kind of mentorship. And we just started meeting at the tea shop and hanging out and talking. We got as deep as conversations could get. 
Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story, and not everybody has put it together. Not everybody has figured out what the overarching narrative of their story is. Some people need a little bit more help fishing it out. That's not the case with you. I think you're pretty clear. I love your story. I love what you're doing. I love your energy. One of my first memories of you was coming in the tea shop. You've got, I forget what they were. That's when I started drawing, too. Pastels. Yes. Paper. After that, I started drawing. And there was this, (laughs) I'm going to be honest, like a rudimentary (laughs) drawing of a tiger. Mm Mm-hmm. And I go, oh, what are you drawing? But you were not afraid. Like the way you were drawing was somebody who did not care what anybody else thought of the drawing. You were not tentative. You were just putting color down on the paper drawing this tiger. And I say, what's going on? And you told me, oh, I saw this shaman. She told me I'm a tiger. (laughs) So I've been watching tiger videos all week. (laughs) And I've been drawing tigers and trying to learn what I'm supposed to learn from this animal, which led me to go do it. I got a horse. That's how the past guest, just before this episode, ended up being a friend of mine, is she got put in my life. She said, oh, I'm a horse rancher. I said, okay, we should be friends because I need to learn about horses. Tell me about the tiger thing. That's great, Sam. And thanks for that. Uh, you reminded me of how freeing it is to just draw and use the chalk pastels and go over and over. And it's actually part of that motion, right? We do the tiger thing and she does this drumming and she goes, there's an animal that's come for you. Do you want to know what it is? And the drumming thing, whenever I hear this, it's a native American Sioux Indian wide, large circle drum. Hand drum, right? Yeah. That certain sound, man. And my tiger comes. But anyway, I had major, major experiences with the tiger after that, including doing intergenerational uh, healing of my parents and their parents, where I got kind of got a clue about my message. When my nephew took his life, my tiger showed him the way to heaven and came back. Very powerful. So this tiger comes and she goes, this is your animal, your spirit animal. And that was a Friday. And the next day was Saturday. And that's when I spend my weekends umpiring six games on Saturday, five games on Sunday, pretty regularly. I've been umpiring softball and baseball and it can get contentious on the field, especially when things don't go a person's way. And the codependent part of me would, in the beginning, when I first started umpiring, would go, oh, I got to make that guy happy somehow. So I was past that. But intellectually, I knew better. But on the, on the inside, I still had the, oh, I need to do something to get that right. And I'm battling within myself. So I wasn't exactly comfortable. And she says, why don't you have the tiger with you? And we talked a lot about it. So I invited the tiger to sit next to me during the whole game. And I just kept imagining the tiger was there i go out to second base one time early in the game and two coaches walk up to me and i'm calm as can be and they talk to me differently people have been talking to me differently ever since because the tiger gave me courage i can't tell you how gratifying it is to be with you with anyone now and i i'm free to just be me i don't have to worry about fear or hurting anything like that i have the power of the tiger in me the tiger, if you look at it, it just he doesn't have to go chase nobody. The tiger, you know, the animals know that it's not to go near it. And the tiger only pounces when he wants to. It's a very wise animal and only utilizes what it utilizes when it needs to utilize. And it's afraid of nothing. So I love it. <laughs> Along the way, I've also brought in the crows for, for long-term vision and the coyote for, for playing. The coyote teaches me to play. That's I've had encounters with both of those animals and several times, which they're, it's just great to have this kind of extra thing in my life. I loved it. I, <laughs> I, lo- I think it's, well, yeah, I, I don't even think it's a, it's a good meditation to reconnect back into something in the natural world. You don't have to feel, you can approach it from whatever distance you want to. I learned from you because you dove in and you said, I'm going to watch tiger videos. I'm going to read about the animal. I'm going to draw with the animal and I'm going to treat this as an opportunity to get to know myself with the animal as the prompt about how does this animal move through the world because we're very detached from the natural world. Very, very detached. And when I get particularly unwell, I go back off the grid and I can go camp by myself. Thankfully, that's a skill I have. And you will be reminded of some of the ways that are in you all along that this weird concrete world tends to make us forget. One of them, I was incredibly sick. This is a good camping story. I was incredibly sick. This was 
during the time where we first met where I, I didn't know if I wanted to come back to the show. I didn't know if I wanted to be in public. I was basically like, should I just be a deadbeat? Like, is that because I have no energy? I hate this pressure that this show is putting on me. I went out to the woods with my dog, set up a very basic camp. And in the middle of the night, yeah, everything's good until the middle of the night, some animals start messing with our tent. In our area, they're coyotes, but in that moment, they felt like wolves because I have no energy and I'm with this tiny dog who's terrified and I'm terrified because I have no energy. And there was this moment where from deep within, this burst of energy comes with uh, no one else is here to scare away the coyotes. It's either you or nothing. And that something about that was very freeing. Was it a voice you heard? I experienced it as a voice. But the, the point is, is I jumped up, I got out, I let the rest of the natural world know that was my campsite for the night. Didn't see him again. But I didn't have the energy to move like that in that moment. I was very diminished. I was very slow. Everything was slow. And everything felt like if I exerted energy, it would kill me for the next little bit. And to have that burst of primal fight or flight come back and to go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, the energy's there. It's just buried just to be reminded it's like best way i could put it is you know when you're devastated heartbroken or hopefully I'd, I, you, you never knew that but let's just assume you've lived a normal life and you you've known what that feeling of devastation and heartbreak feel like and the first time that you have some love or some crush energy pop back up and you realize oh my gosh my heart isn't completely smashed to smithereen because i'm all of a sudden now interested in another human it was like that, but with energy, where I was like, dead, I'm going to be dead. My energy is always going to be depleted to, oh, there's energy there. It's just not, like whatever you're doing in life is not accessible. That led me on to taking a carpentry job with David Swain, who said, hey, can you put up nice clear cedar siding on my house like they do in the Netherlands? I'm not a carpenter. I guess he knew I had tools and had carpentry skills. I was a carpenter at one point, but I wasn't advertising that as a service. And uh, I went to his house and put up the sighting. I had all kinds of energy. That was a huge clue. That was a huge clue. Oh, you do have energy, just not in the way that you've been, the way you've situated your life. Super fascinating, right? Yeah. How does this energy come in? In my view, maybe God created the world and it, it runs by itself. You know, like it restores itself. It has wind, rain, sun, you know, just continues to rock and roll, right? You figure, oh, maybe that's, that's all we get to see of God is that watch the earth. Okay. We met at a pretty dark time in my life. You were a pretty positive force in it. And I think you're the type of guy that would check in on me, send texts to me, ask how I'm doing, even when I couldn't respond back. That's a lot to me. So let's get going. Who are you? My pleasure, Sam. <clears throat> Who am I? Good question. Well, my nickname is Skip, which I think is fun. And I was always in high school called Skip. My high school reunion is actually tomorrow night. So that's kind of fun going to go with my sister. That kid was somebody who just loved to run around and play and jump. And, and unfortunately, uh, you know, I was come from a really difficult background. Uh, both parents, I think, had abuse in their early lives, and they took it out on their kids. And my father especially took it out on his kids. He never hit my mom, but he would hit us until my mom said she'd had enough of the sound. So then that made me feel like I, I wasn't important enough to protect so back to the kid that's running, now I'm jumping from staircase to staircase, down off of fences, no regard for my body. I pay for it a little bit now. I'm still athletic. I'm still an athlete. I play softball twice a week. I umpire softball about 20 games a week. I love it. But I needed help growing up. So in high school, one of the greatest interventions that ever happened to me, dad was finally leaving. I was ready the to house. kick his ass, yes. It took her, it took my mother. I'm so, I'm still angry about it, to be honest. And I've done a lot of work on forgiving them both, but she didn't protect us. So when he finally left, she went to work. I was the oldest. We're in San Francisco in the mission, the deeper part of the mission next to Hunter's Point. And what, I'm responsible now. Silver Street, Silver yeah, Avenue. I know Silver Ave. Yeah. And so now I'm responsible. One day I was pounding my head on the desk at school and the principal walked up to me and asked me if he could do anything. And I just was like, oh, because I felt either I was going to go kill somebody or kill myself that day. That's how crazed I felt. And he says, are you hungry? And I said, no, I'm tired. 
So come with me. He let me sleep for a couple hours. He saved my life. That's an example of what was needed through a series of those over the next 20 some years. It finally changed me from victim to, I want to be able to do that for somebody else. It was a magical moment when it happened. It was part of me, fourth and fifth step with my sponsor. And after giving it out, giving all my garbage out and trying to forgive everybody, I just had this feeling of freedom like you would not believe, like chains came off, uh, like I was carrying a dumpster behind me. And I just, wow, I want to do this for somebody else. That was 25 years ago. And I've been on that mission ever since. And I believe that's why my life is, that's why my life was saved. Several drunk drivings. I never hit anybody. I never crashed. I fell asleep at the wheel all the time. And I'd get woken up by the bumps on the road. It was actually my plan to take myself out right before sobriety. It's going to crash into the Bay Bridge, die by suicide. Not that it would look like suicide, I hoped, because so that my family could get the $500,000 life insurance. And that was what I thought my life was worth before sobriety. So when I felt that freedom of me having my life saved, I said, this is why I'm alive. I'm to give this message to help another person out of it. And I'm to show up whenever asked. And because of following that path, I've been blessed. Wow. As someone who was abandoned by my father and had many opportunities to come back, I can picture a little bit what it feels like for an adult to come into your life and to say, hey, you matter. And let's figure out what matters to you. And in that moment, it sounds like with the principal, you needed rest. Before we jump into what's going on now, which is cool, and I have some funny stories that came up when I was thinking about having you on the show, tell us a little bit about that transformation to wanting annihilation, to, to feeling that energy, which I know, especially as a young man, I don't know what it would feel like to be a young woman, but I know as a young man, I had so much energy that had nowhere to go. I got some relief in wrestling. I got some relief in fighting. I got some relief in just horsing around in physicality with the guys. But at its core, there was just there was pain and there was suffering. I was a sensitive guy. I felt the injustice going on in my own life. I felt the injustices going on in the world, or at least what I had pegged as injustices at that age. I worry about that a bit these days. Like I feel like a lot of what I was would have, I mean, we'll just stick to what happened. What happened was I grew up in Marin County. It's a very left-leaning, hippie, peacenik kind of place. I was not, I didn't fit that mold in a way. I wanted to do battle with Athena and I wanted to test myself and I wanted to be a physical being and it was very confusing. I love my mother and she has always been in my life, except when I was really out there, she had to give me the boot and had to cut me off completely. I really, in some way, still feel the, the gaping hole that was left by some lack of place for that energy to go. It sounds like listening to you, you had two parents who did not have the tools for you. To put it generously, they did not have the tools for you. Your dad, which it sounds like you've come to a, an understanding with the, the spirit of, of your father, really sucked. <laughs> put it plain, simple English. And your mom didn't know how to create a safe place for you at the very least. Narcissism, both of them. Yeah. Just totally into themselves. And unfortunately, narcissism breeds narcissism. Because as a kid, I had to learn to take care of myself. I had to be selfish. So undoing that also has been part of my journey. Can we talk a bit about the, the stages of that development? You're the guy jumping down flights of stairs and just... Physical, can, to, I can bust through a tackle. I can outjuke you. I can uh, defend you in basketball. I can catch anything that's hit to me in baseball, you know, and this is my thing. And then I, trying so hard without regard for my body, I tear my knee. I have three knee surgeries, 14, 15, and 16 years old. So my dream of getting out of this life, of being a professional athlete, when the third operation, my knee buckled at, at full speed. I was done, and I was pissed. And I also got sober at 16 for about six months because of bad trips. Before that, when I first discovered drugs, I had freedom from that mess. I had freedom from the feeling bad about myself, the voices that told me I wasn't good enough. And I discovered, discovered some nirvana with MDMA and mushrooms a little bit and, and a lot of hashish. I started to find nirvana spaces. And I thought, this is cool, man. And I, 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 so I've always sought this freedom, this peace of mind. 
But at 16, I start controlling it because I had really bad trips that made me stop, get sober. So now I'm only going to do marijuana and alcohol and I'm going to count. And I had before that, I was just no regard, right? So it was a challenge. And so then that goes for the next 20 some years, trying your hardest to control it, losing it. All of a sudden, why am I in the bar at 2 a.m.? Why is my debit card empty from cocaine 24 hours after, after getting some? What happened? Okay, you know, so then I'd go not do anything for two, three weeks. And then gradually, I just couldn't handle the noise in my head. So I needed something to get rid of all the injustice that had been pushed down inside me. And it wasn't until I got into a recovery group. And that transformation, to be honest with you, I don't care what they had on the walls. I don't care what they had in their books. What mattered was they said, hey, welcome. We're glad you're here. Sit down. No, don't leave yet. We want to talk to you. Where are you going? Why don't you have some coffee with us? Here, have some more coffee. I literally would sit in those meetings with my dirty-ass feet up on the table because <laughs> I had a problem with taking any advice from any adult, male or female, due to the PTSD I'd had from anybody getting within my space. That was like a message, don't come near me. Yet they did. That's really the answer that I believe that all people need is that feeling of safety emanating from another human being. Like, I help regulate people now. I had to get myself regulated. I had to receive the beautiful energy, and I do, willingly, gladly, gratefully, because I no longer have that negative concept about myself. Neither do I have that really about my parents. They were damaged people. They did the best they could with what had happened to them. They didn't have the benefit of the love and the support and the psychology and whatever. However, I'm made to, to desire that freedom to have that understanding of how life works and psychology and behavior works. Why they didn't have that and why I had it, I don't know. But I, I truly know that they would do better if they could, if they were raised different. And I, so I'm all about trying to create that early development for children and then restoring young people back to who that person is. It's not a lot of rocket science in my approach. It's really, I want to help somebody discover their beautiful two-year-old self. Because at two, if you were in my house or some of these other homes, when that door went up and the garage door went up and, and you knew dad was home, all of a sudden it's like, where's he? Which dad is it? I'm not playing anymore. I'm two, three, four, five years old. I'm in dad's head, his story. I lose touch with who I am. I'm in survival mode. And so many young people are in that state. What I really want to do is help young people tell them that you no longer have to follow that story. You have the power to write your own story and have it based upon the natural gifts and passions that you have and what you care about. And let's go. Let's go do this great stuff. Let's thrive. The technique is really about redirecting kids into thriving by changing their mental mindset towards something that they really want to achieve and teaching them how to win. So it took me a while to get there, to learn all these techniques. One of the things I learned pretty quick about you is you were running this program in Oakland. It was scrappy. You were filing for your own grants. You were working with public school districts. Nobody was holding your hands. To tell us about how it started, what it was, how it came to be, because it seems like there's just this thing bursting out of you. So I, it actually started in AA. I started talking to kids on a volunteer basis. Somebody said, you should get into service, a greater amount of service. I raise my hand. I start becoming this chairman for the county, setting up talks to go talk to kids. At the same time, uh, because of my drug use, because of my behavior, my infidelity with my wife, and the fact that she also was very judgmental and no, she just no, never forgave me for it. And she beat me up in front of the kids and she blamed me for everything. She painted me black. So here I am sober three, four years and I'm not seeing my kids. And it's this big hole in my heart. And I get this opportunity to talk to kids. And I can't tell you, man. The teacher said, let's write him cards. And I would sit in my room and read those cards. And see something good said about me. And, something, and they were grateful. That shit was gold, man. There was an opportunity to volunteer at Hayward High School and do a DMV prevention video with the high school students. And I said, sure. Be glad to, right? Afterwards, on the assembly, and I, and I talked to the entire audience, a thousand people, and I was just so grateful. And I said, I just want to ask everybody, just please don't drink and drive, man. It's not worth it. I did it a bunch of times, and I got lucky. You're not going to be like me, so please don't. 
right? Walk into my car. They tap me on the shoulder and they say, hey, you want to do this 20 hours a week? I said, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah, because I was a sober bartender at that time. I was bartending sober. Which are the best bartenders, by the way. I've talked to yeah, bar owners. It's not fun. No. Because <laughs> you got to listen to stories over and over again. You don't steal from the till and you don't drink the product. No, I had, that's true. So anyway, after I did that for a couple of years, the money, and I, we would do some crazy stuff. And you talk about that energy, right? I was working sometimes 17 hours a day to put on those, those assemblies. And I do all this video editing for seven schools at the same time. We're doing it in seven schools at the same time. Whew. It was everything to me. It was, that was me that I'm doing something good with my life. I'm not doing something bad. So I just poured all my energy into that. I still wasn't like really taking good care of myself, not really eating right. You know, I wasn't definitely making time for love or, you know, I was always on my own case. You know, shame was one of the biggest things to change. And it, has, it was going to change in a few more years, not, not, not yet. So anytime I'd make a mistake, I'd always be on my case. Anyway, I poured myself into it. After two years, the, the money ran out. And then someone asked me, you're really good at talking to kids. You want to be trained on how to talk to kids about marijuana interventions? I said, sure. So I did that for Castro Valley for a year. And then the guy in Oakland said, you want to come to Oakland and do this? So I come to Oakland and I can see who the people are. I'm so dedicated to the kids. Like I show up every day. I'm seeing like 10, 12 kids a day at every school site. I'm doing more. I'm sorry to brag, but I'm doing more than everybody else. The other three counselors combined. 2005, they said, why don't you be the supervisor of this program? Great. And I keep on learning techniques since now I'm responsible for training these folks. I wasn't sure I wanted to do that, but I did it. And then I started getting better at it. And what school district is Oakland this? Oakland Unified. Yeah. And Tough so, school district. Yeah. I first show up and they go, can you help these kids? And I, and I start talking to the kids and it wasn't knowledge that was going to help them. It was what's going on underneath. Go in deeper to that. I want to hear more. So what's their underlying issues? Do they struggle with self-worth? Is there domestic violence in their house? Is there grief? In Oakland, the average kid loses at least one friend in their lifetime during the school years. And in 20% of the fifth graders have lost three. It's insane. So by 11th grade, you can imagine what it's like. And we're getting these kids after several years of failing in the school system, being labeled as no good. They've got this negative belief about themselves. So I needed to find something that would shift that negative belief. So I was working really hard, like, you know, propping them up, promoting them. It just so happens that I was thinking about leaving my job. This is like 2008. I asked my friend, Ira Sacknoff, who's a fantastic peer education resource leader. He would be a great guest on the show. He gave me a life coach friend and I go to her and she gives me a strengths test. We just had three sessions, but in the strengths test, I realized I was built for this work. I'm very passionate about this work. So therefore I'm staying where I'm at. Six months go by. And I'm finally talking to this really difficult kid, and they, he's 17. He's at a continuation school, and they say, good luck. He's always comatose. He's so high and all this kind of stuff. So I start talking to him. After th the third session, I realized it's not really going to help because every, every time I saw him again, he had a new relapse trigger. Like we coached him up on like how, how to avoid his friends or how to make different friends, and he still relapsed on something else, right? So finally, it just popped into my head. Hey, have you ever taken a strengths test? So I give him the strengths test. He tests like a CEO or an executive director of a nonprofit. We go over it in detail and reflect it with his life. He identifies with the characteristics of the executive director. We make a plan. What do you want to do? Have your own business or have your own nonprofit community center? I want to have my own community center in West Oakland. We, we create a little plan for that. And then I go, what could you be doing today that will start you on that path? He says, I could go volunteer or work at the community center, the local community center. So I coach him up on introducing himself and how to, he, gets, he gets employed there. I show up at the school three weeks later, and the principal stops me in the hallway. What'd you say to him? <laughs> I said, I was like, what do you mean? He goes, he's doing great. He's paying attention. He's listening. I said, well, you know, that, that's cool, man. You know what else? He's really smart. You should invite him into your staff meetings and ask for his opinion on how to make this place a better school. And that was the magical day. Because from that point on, we've been giving the strengths test to every kid, about 600 a year, and turning their lives around. So I turned it into a life coaching program. At the end, in Oakland, I had 15 coaches. And I also got myself certified as a coach, four different kinds of coaching methods. I got my team certified. We went to trainings. I, I still teach it. I'm doing two workshops in July. One is on how to take the early childhood developmental needs of a kid that's not met yet 
as a teenager and how to get them to meet those needs as a teenager. And the second uh, training I'm doing is how to use a four-step process of coaching young people towards success. That's where it really rocked and rolled because I found something that really worked. Redirecting the mindset, using the strengths and the passions of the person, coaching them up so they could be successful, getting them to win. It's done wonders for me because what's good for the goofs is good for the gander. (laughs) (laughs) I got got a story that happened. It was a revelation. We do this book club. People who help support the show, join Patreon. If you want to, you can read book with me. And it's kind of like doing the podcast. In the podcast, like I have time to think about how to frame this conversation. I have time to think about how do I want to navigate it? Do I want to take a more forward role? Do I want to take a more... Anyway... This is much more raw, right? We're all kind of stream of consciousness working real time. I'm watching people's process real time. They're watching my process real time. It's uglier than the show is because the show gets such a white glove treatment just to respect people's time. Somehow, this this was a group process. I can't take credit for it, but somehow we, we get to talking about uh, matter. Not the physical matter, but like the thing that humans can do, which is to take take things and make them matter. Like every kid had a stuffed animal that mattered to them or a toy that mattered to them or something. I come up with or the group come up, comes up with this idea, hey, for the next week, let's try to, every single person we talk to, let's try to figure out what matters to them and then make it matter to us because it matters to them. And obviously my son is the guinea pig for this. <laughs> and he loves games. A lot of kids love video games. I liked video games when I was his age. I still play, but just not in the same way. And to me, I've always looked at it as kind of like, stupid, waste of time. What does this matter? So he would be coming up to me, showing me, hey, dad, I just won a round. Hey, dad, look at this new gear I got. Because I saw video games as a distraction and something stupid and that you should be figuring out if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or what, because I don't want you to end up as a college dropout like me. I take a different approach and I start going, hey, show me that video game you like. And he explained every ins and out that he liked about this particular game. He showed me what he liked about the gameplay, what he liked. So I start playing and we start playing together. I didn't realize how a hard this video game was to play. It started to put everything into context. I would love him to be doing certain things, but it's not my life. It's his life. It has been transformative. Not only are we spending a lot more time together, the things that I do find important, he's now sharing with me too. And participate. there's been a give and take a little bit. For us to have this slightly different relationship, it's a really subtle twist. But just to go rather, what do I want? What do I think's best to you? To I'm still the dad. It's still my choice at the end of the day. But just to go, oh, hey, this has got you energized. Let's see why. And let's see what's there. This is one of those things that I'm going to talk about. I'm just going to have to tell myself that if I want to do this meditation, this is the rest of my life. I will go in and out of it. And so I don't want to paint a picture of like, I tried this thing and it worked. I'm going to be doing it all the time. But I have found it to be such a superpower. Very powerful what you just did. So what you did was you reflected back. He had the opportunity to process with you. So if he decided after talking to you that this was not exactly everything, you helped him see himself by simply asking him, "What? tell me about this. Show me this kind of st- cool stuff. That's what we want to do. We want young people to be more self-aware. So he didn't have to defend him doing it and put his thought energy into that. He got to talk with a non-judgmental person who let him see it for himself. And if he has good values, he will make good decisions this what you just did with him you're also modeling for him what kind of mentor would he like to have what kind of boss would he like to have somebody who values his opinions and values his ideas yeah people want to be loved and people want to matter but they teach us you didn't you say your son taught you a few things about the video game and you learned some things so that's an opportunity that we get to have when we get to find out what what people do and who they are and why they do what they do Yeah, he taught me more about myself Hmm. in the sense that I was trying to shove a square peg into a round hole. I do this with everybody because I'm a genius and I just know what's best for you. (laughs) Obviously, I know what's best for you. If you just listen to me, your whole life would be better. It, It was kind of like repositioning, you know, like fighting down in the valley and then realizing, oh, you know what would be better? Let's retreat a little bit. 
up the hill and just have a different stance. And it made me less of a boss of all the situations in my life and more of just a participant. So what you did was you switched to a facilitative style of leadership instead of a directing kind of style of leadership. Well, I would say switching because it's a work in progress. Right. But yeah, but, I get what, but I get what you're saying. But you're facilitating with him. And what's great about facilitative leadership, and we, this is the process we use with young people and we're, where we're interviewing them, it's not saying you should. If he doesn't think of it as a facilitative leader, I can just put it out there. Oh, so you really like this video game because of what? Tell me more. Does this make you happy? How do you feel, son, after playing these video games? Some people, of course, with social media, and if anyone's listening who's got kids or mentoring a young person, social media also can be a dark place where you don't meet your friend or you get let down or, or somebody doesn't like your post or, or they say something really mean about you. We have to facilitate. We could use the same process. So how did you feel after this session, which you just had with social media, blah, 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 whatever. Literally didn't huh, felt about like this. Do hmm. you think you want to keep on doing it? I'm not going to say don't do it. I'm going to ask you, do you think you want to keep on doing it? I don't know. I'm not sure what else to do. You know what? Why don't we go fishing today? And so you throw something nice at them and you show them something different where they get to feel good. And that's an opportunity because there's a hole there, right? There's something missing. Like the social media didn't fit, didn't, didn't fill their hole. So now you really want to offer something sweet that will work, that'll make them engage more in life and give them some good direction. And knowing your son and anyone that knows their own kids, remember what they like when they're little. You can feed them that anytime. That makes me really happy to hear about you and your son. I'm experiencing a little bit of a transformation of myself. It might have been that I, I hit the right age, so now it's like I'm open to it. But I am growing, and I'm curious to see where it leads and really want to stay on the path of this growth, which mostly means getting out of my own way. I started working during COVID. I took a part-time job. And I was teaching kids outdoor skills. That's one of the mm. skills I have. It was incredibly rewarding. And I noticed these guys and girls, they are very privileged in a very affluent area. The, the problems that came up during that, a lot of them, I think, are consequences of that. But I saw that most of my problem kids were, or problem kids, you know, really high energy, would never listen to me, would act out, do things to get attention, basically. And in the first couple weeks, I'm going home every day just going, God, that fucking kid, man. These were smart kids, too. So they could really look under your armor and try and find out where all your weak spots are. And they'll say anything to get a rise. About three weeks in, the biggest problem kid turns to me and he goes, my mom is never around. And I thought, what? Oh, okay. Do you wish she was? Yes. Oh, do you want to talk about it? And he goes, my mom leaves for weeks at a time for business trips. And I hate my nanny. And he just keeps going on and going on. And that was the first time I met that kid. Right. For real. Right. I wasn't meeting the bodyguard of that kid. That's when it clicked. And I'm like, this young man has such a gap of attention that he's filling up. His, you know, we met on Fridays. He's filling up his week's worth of attention here in five hours. That helped a lot, and it helped me a lot, too, just to cool it with my snap judgments and really cool it with me thinking I know what's going on or saying, like, hey, you're misbehaved. You're a misbehaved kid. His knees are coming out, like, calling you names or messing with you, but he's getting attention, right? So the technique, which you, you, you use a great technique listening to him, but you could reframe it realize that I see you know you're doing a great job getting attention for yourself I see that I also see that people kind of are resistant to get close to you so I was wondering if I could show you how you could get attention but also get people on your side would you like to learn about how to how to do that it's like reframing and bridging to a, a more positive behavior you found out he's not doing it because he's a jerk he's doing it because he has a need this is what was really dope about working in Oakland Usually the first two sessions, they would just bounce out on me. I'd have some food, some music. But I kept coming to their room and, and to pull them out of class. And they realized this dude really cares. I tried to push him away like all the other adults do. They don't really want to be around me. So you know what? I'm going to be in control. I'm going to push him away. 
Because at least I'm in control of when that happens. Because all these other adults, they just push me away or leave me. When you show up like that, you continue to show up. They realize you really are there and you mean it. I didn't know if I would be effective in Oakland. It was my heart that I got to find out about. My heart was good to be effective in Oakland. That was so, so rewarding. And it's so the techniques really grounded in that. To, to bring a person into healing, it's great if there's a home to come back to. Like in my case, I didn't ever have loving parents. I really relate to these kids in Oakland. The worst thing that can happen to any person is, is at home is when you get the hell beat out of you. And I mean, I was thrown against walls. My father punched me in my face and knocked me out when I was 13 because I brought a black friend over the house. And when I went to his family's house, there was like six kids. They were poor. They divided up the food equally and gave me an equal share. So how do you think that made me feel, right? Without home, we have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. What we need to do is teach them, we need to find a way for them to find a home, to find safety. And I had to find that for myself. I tried a lot of things, you know, through sex, through, through drugs, you know. Ultimately, it was shame that was the thing that I had to beat. So we have to meet their basic needs first so that they feel like it's home. And then just like if, if the kid can play and have fun, if you can, so you really kind of do more play therapy at first. And then once they're comfortable with you, then you can start to introduce some more intellectual pursuits. That's with the younger kids. And with the older kids, like 17, 18, they're not down for that. They're, they're finished, but they want a career. They want to make money. So with them, you really got to get into, you want to be an entrepreneur? Let's get into it. You want to learn video production? Let's music production. They were very interested in practical making money. And in terms of working on the issues, that's going to come later, just like it did for me. Sort of like it's, it's for you as an adult, for me as an adult. I didn't really start working on those childhood issues until I was like 37, 38 years old is when I began. And I'm still working on it today. So it, it, it changes, right? We really have to offer ourselves as flexible tools for these young people in Oakland and wherever you are and here too. So I, I just collected a lot of data on the kids in, in Marin and the depression and the suicide rate is very alarming. There's too much pressure coming from society, from parents. It seems like everyone is affected across the world about what had happened during the pandemic. But these young people, where's home for them? So a little kid going into these pandemic situations, whoa, how do they come back to life? How does this middle school kid come back to integrating back with, with society? For high school kids, they've been in society, but then pandemic separating for a little while is not as bad, right? So this concept of helping people build a home Warriors nurturing. So that's what working with the young people is like, is finding out what you can get them to regulate with and then thrive from. Every kid's different. I want to talk about what it means to build a home, which a lot of these things are completely outside your control. But if, if you could, let's say if the parents came to you and said, hey, we want to get on board with our son or daughter's progress, what can we do? What do you think are the key ingredients of a home? I'll, I'll list a, a couple to feel safe, right? Probably... First is the way I've always phrased it to anyone living in my home or frequently in my home is I go out into the world, I do battle, I participate in the culture. I think our culture is incredibly sick. And in a lot of ways, I don't want to participate, but I do want to be an adult and I do want to be part of it. And when I come home, I don't want a war. I've done my battle out in the world. This is a safe place. That is easier said than done. A home should be an insulation from it. We have some challenges with that, right? We have the internet. We have social media. We're now bringing the culture, bringing the outside world into our homes, which is something, for me, I am way more careful about hopping on social media. Most of my life, I kind of grew up like, I'm an American, or I'm a West Coaster, or I'm this, and kind of just like, I am a part. Now I have a much greater distance from whatever you would call the mixing of all our selves. I call it the culture, where I'm really trying to have a culture within a culture. We'll get back to the home building. <laughs> Safety, to feel like you matter. I think that's one of the strangest messages out in the world right now is, and a lot of them are causes I care about, but the message is 
you're human, you're a parasite, you're destroying the planet, you're this, you're part of this system that's destroying these people. It's There's a lot of things to get nihilistic about and to feel like, oh, well, I don't matter, I'm just taking up space. I'm just creating more plastic in the world. I'm continuing to oppress oppressed people. Whatever it is, there's a million things that will strip you of your own personal agreement that you're here and that you get to be here and that you were born, you didn't ask to be born, and this is your experience. Right now, we're having a co-experience. Over on my side of the chair, I'm continuing to learn how to experience being Sam. And that's what I'm going to do until the day I die or the day that the earth explodes or whatever. But as somebody who's been very suicidal in the past and may feel those feelings again, you know, I don't pretend like I've conquered all feeling and emotion. I'm here. And so when, you know, when I hop online now, especially when I'm home or somewhere that I'm trying to feel safe and somebody's telling me about what a piece of shit I am or this, you're gone. I don't care if you work for Peace Corps. I don't care. You're gone because I invited you in and you're now disinvited. What do you think? Like if, if parents wanted your help and to say, hey, I, my, son's, you know, my son or daughter's talking about what you guys are doing. I want to be supportive. What would your check-in checklist kind of look like? It's a great question. And it's, it's easy to just look at indigenous cultures and tribal lifestyle and take a look at that and what, what happened there, right? You alluded to a few things earlier, too, when you were inviting your son in participatory decision-making and leadership. Uh, young people are nurtured and loved based on their developmental level. They actually start to take on responsibilities in the family with praise, with encouragement, with appreciation. Appreciating your child all the time, authentically, is a very powerful technique. If it's the parents, it's really going to be about how do they see themselves? What energy are they bringing into the equation? As far as what, what does the young person need? Well, it depends upon their age, but definitely opportunities to use their own creativity. A bunch of successful CEOs were asked about their childhood and what was common about their childhood was that their parents gave them an opportunity to create and activate that creativity by providing them with the resources that they needed to build. The parents let them do it, gave them the resources and allowed them to, to grow. The Montessori concept is an amazing concept. You walk in and you choose your path and you get to choose what you play with and, you, and it's okay and you learn from it. The safety, absolutely, right? But also taking a very interest, noticing your child, what they're doing paying attention to it, seeing what they're doing, what they like doing, and, and giving them what they, they need to continue to grow. One of the things I learned from the pandemic from young people, they're incredibly resourceful. So these young people were coming up with ideas about business, new things. I've had several conversations with young people, and I particularly like talking to young people because they have great ideas. Like, could we protect food without packaging? <laughs> and so we'll figure it out. We can work together and we can make this earth really work. And we can have animals, have their spaces, we can have our spaces, and this planet can thrive. We're gonna have to learn to work together. It's an interesting thing about humans. At first, when they came out, for survival reasons, they became tenacious to, dis to destroy the animals nearby them, because if they didn't, the animals would destroy them. But they didn't stop there, unfortunately. They developed this habit of killing everything. Now they've killed everything in the planet, protected themselves, so the humans are pretty safe from now they turn on each other. We're missing something here. We could have a beautiful life. Why are we spending so much money on guns when we could be spending money on making life really good and stuff because people have a fear-based mentality? Well, I think, unfortunately, life is so fast-moving, so fast-paced. By the time you wake up, there's emails you got to answer. It's like your day, combined with your habits, is almost predestined without intervention, right? Without you saying, like, hey, I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to think about what I want to do today. What is my day about? What values, as you said, or virtues, as I like to say, every day tends to be a little bit different for me because there's days where I want to spotlight, hey, I want to be kinder and sweeter to my partner or to my son. I want to be more patient with my mother. Bit by bit, some of those get to become a bigger part of my kind of programming. It's so hard. I've noticed talking to, to other parents, where I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, what values do you want to teach so-and-so? And it's almost like you'd think they'd have an answer prepared for it. They don't. And that's not faulting them. 
that's just pointing out that like there's a lot of room for more consciousness in this right now with my son there's a bunch of stuff i want for him but what his superpower is right now that is revealed to me at least is that he's incredibly kind and he's incredibly sweet and when the gang is picking on a kid he's not joining that for now you know you know what and that sounds like you he got that from you little he's sweeter than me if it's the parents it's really going to be about how do they see themselves what energy are they bringing into the equation are they filling their pot up with love are they receiving love for themselves are they allowing it are they taking breaks i had a great pastor say one time your relationships are going to be based upon how you talk to yourself you're going to treat people according to how you treat yourself you know and then this ptsd thing is a monster being afraid of men and whatnot. In 2010, I was fighting human trafficking at this point with one of the churches I was affiliated with. But I was mostly because of the girls and what they had gone through. I related to a lot of the stuff they had gone through, but I had never been what they'd, I'd never been raped like that and all that. But I'd related to the drug use and the abuse and all this kind of stuff. I got the opportunity to go to the sheriff's department in San Francisco. They have a recidivism program for violent offenders. You have to be on great behavior. And then for the last year of your term, you get to go into this program where they try to restore your empathy. I went into there and I watched it. So now I'm with a hundred men who are violent and I'm listening, I'm watching. And what they're doing is they're actually listening to victims and they're reflecting back what they heard. Then they put them in circles and they got them to get in touch with the time that they got stepped all over. Cause you step on somebody so much, you step the empathy out of them. So what they did was they brought them back to that place. Like I had my experience. I walked away from that. I need to work with the boys from now on. In this way. So what I started to do is include talking about the value of treating women better when you're in a relationship. When I talked to girls, I started talking about diversifying your needs for love. I used the, the example of finances. So I had these girls that were very boy happy and they're vulnerable to this kind of Romeo pimping thing that, that they use. The boys pretend to be their boyfriend. Their mothers get involved. They get the girl to come into the house. Then they say, do me a favor. And they start trafficking her. And they go, I'll be outside the door and all this bullshit, right? So took the girls and I, that were boy, real boy crazy and just made sure that they needed love and they needed to know that they were valuable. And I said, well, let's look at money. And I, I put on the board and I started, if you want to make money when you're 25, how many different ways? They said job. I said, what else? So we got about seven things on there. And I said, now that's great. Look at all. So if one of these funding streams dries up, you still got funding. I said, now let's look at love. Look at the different ways you could be loved, a dog, a pet, you know, your mom, your grand, all these different things. But the abuser wants to cut you off of all those things. So you don't want that. You want to continue. So anyone that tries to cut you off from one of your sources of love, just walk away from them and diversify your love. We want young people to be more self-aware, super powerful. Yeah. How does this energy come in all of a sudden? Maybe God created the world and it, it runs by itself. You know, like it restores itself. It has wind, rain, sun, you know, just continues to rock and roll. You figure... Well, maybe that's God might have. That's all we get to see of God is that watch the earth. I can't explain, though. How does this power reach in and help me at the most critical time on the day that my I was sober seven months? I've been sober continuous for 25 years. On the day I was sober seven months, I was real squirrely. I've been doing great. I've been going to my meetings. I'd done that. I've been working the steps with my sponsor, gotten into service, but I felt squirrely. So I drove to San Francisco where my drug dealer that I used to buy cocaine from lived. And I used to buy about two to two and a half grams of cocaine a day, which equals about, let's say around $200 a day back then. So this guy makes, uh, let's say between $3,000 and $4,000 a month just from me. All right. So I show up at his house. He goes, what are you doing? I go, he was in a neighborhood, you know, say, come on in. So we start talking, start talking about what's been, what you've been doing. I tell him, you know, stuff like that. He goes, so, so why are you here? I go, oh, I just thought maybe I would get some, you know, from you. He looked at me and he goes, nah, I'm not selling to you. I get back in my car. I find the closest meeting. I go to it. And I felt like I was sitting in the palm of God's hands. I felt so safe. I've never felt that safe since before or after. And then I check my phone as I'm driving. There's a message. My dad had died. So I wouldn't be here today without that intervention. The second biggest one happened when I was river rafting on Memorial Day weekend five years ago. And I had taken a group of people up on the Class 5 rapids. And it was the first a year ago I had spilled out. 
at the bottom of this rapids they called Tunnel Chute Rapids. Miners had dynamited the river because it was wide there to create this chute and this really fast-moving thing. They actually make you get out of the raft, look at it, what you're about to do, tell you what you need to do, stay in the middle of the thing, follow directions. We're going to go through this amazing block-long rapids. So the second time I do this, we're the fourth boat. I have a leader. She's a woman. She's been doing it for nine years. We go in backwards at the start, at the top. There's rock walls, and it's about 30 feet deep of water. As soon as we hit it backwards, the boat flips. I'm underneath, walking with my hands. Two other women are also underneath the water. One actually stayed on top, and she couldn't swim. She kept her head above the water somehow. The other woman was, was like me, deep underwater. She did not hit any rocks. As I'm walking, trying to walk my hands to get out from underneath the raft, bam, I hit a brick wall. I hit the, not a brick wall, I hit a wall, a rock wall, and my knee splits wide open, and I lose all my oxygen, and I gulp in water for air. My body flips around, and I hit my back against this, another wall, and I do the same thing. And now I'm, I'm trapped against the wall, and I'm saying to myself, shit, I think I'm going to die here. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, is a voice. Close your mouth and hold on. And it was a woman's voice. So I did that. And they, they took me out of the water. They benched me. I didn't even realize my ankle was ripped also. I didnn't even know it because I found out when I first tried to stood up after they bandaged my knee. And I, oh, I was going to go on. But I asked them, I said, so thank you so much to the guide for saying that. I think you saved my life. She goes, I didn't say that. <laughs> Nobody said that. So God came to me as a woman in that situation. That was the beginning of the shaman stuff started to happen right a little bit after that and meeting with them and learning more about how to be happy. I used physicality for my mental health. Now I couldn't do that. So I had to actually face, face up to what I had left to deal with emotionally. And I started doing way more of these shaman kinds of natural healings. And I'm super grateful because it changed my life. I'm much happier than I was five years ago. Wow. And I'm now I'm even getting where my vitality back. I'm playing baseball twice a week, and I'm, I'm feeling like good because of the energy. This energy you were talking about, it's all, I feel like it's always there. It's my mind that, that blocks me from it. So the freer my mind is, the more the energy comes from the earth or you know, the universe. So whenever I can, if I'm in by the ocean, last night I went to Rodeo Beach. What a beautiful beach. And the waves are coming in strong and the, the wind and the sun and the moon and, and just take it in and absorb it because our bodies are designed to absorb things, take information in. And that's what gives us mental health, in my view, is absorbing beautiful things. I like to end the show the same way every time. But if I could hand you my phone right now, and on the other end was young Rob. At, get to pick whatever moment you want, whatever you think you wish you could intervene on, which you probably have intervened on in some of the therapeutic work that you've done. Little Rob got a call, and you're on the other end. Just like you're talking to him, speak the message that you'd want to let him know to help guide him on his journey to the man you've become today. I love you. Be, you're beautiful. I want you to do everything that you feel called to do, especially things like singing, art, playing. Let love guide you because your love is so powerful. I want, I, you should just bask in it and give it to everybody. You've got so much to give. Enjoy your life. And I can't wait to see you on the other side. And if people want to collaborate with you, whether you know for their own private homeschooling group or whether they work for a school district, or where can people find more of your stuff? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn, Robert Dusa. D-O-U-S-A on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest because my email is a strengthsapproach at gmail.com and people might misspell that. So you can start with uh, finding me on LinkedIn. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Sam. You're oh. awesome, bro. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the How To Human podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, you can watch these episodes in beautiful 4K on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash howtohuman. The best thing you can do is to support us financially, although we know some people aren't able to do that. So you could write us a review on iTunes. It's absolutely free. And of course, sharing this episode with friends or family you think would enjoy it helps us find other people who might want to support our show and help us keep going. 
to become a patron and support the show, which we would love and invite you to participate in at any contribution amount. It doesn't matter, big or small. We'd love your support. Go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. You get to watch our episodes as well as join in on the legendary How to Human Book Club, where you get to muse with me in real time and also this new collection of funny friends that I've made. This episode was filmed at Square One Studio in San Anselmo, California. If you would like to have help telling your story, whether that be a podcast, workshop, something that you want to share with the world, if it's a memorial of your life or telling your life story for future generations to come, go to www.squareone.studio. That is a website. It will work if you enter it that way. And for more of us to watch older episodes, please go to hellohumans.co. Thanks and have a great day.